And greetings, everyone. This is KYRS Medical Expo Can 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And you're listening to Art Hour. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Malsam. And I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, today uh, we are very honored to have with us uh, award-winning Sharma Shields as writer, winner of the Pacific Northwest Book Award and winner of the Washington State Book Award in 2016, out with a new book and everything. So uh, what else can I say? We're happy to have Sharma. Thanks for coming, Sharma. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I want to start with a question. Well, kind of a request because I read Sasquatch Hunter's Almanac first and I loved it. I, it was great. And then um, I said, well, i got to read the Cassandra, but I was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and I was nervous because I had heard it was really dark. And uh, I bought it for our school library at Lewis and Clark. And then uh, Mike said that his wife read it, and she said it was really dark. So I went to Favorite Monster, and I read that, and I loved it. <laughs> but uh, can you convince me... Uh, to read the Cassandra despite its darkness? Um, well, first off, I should say, uh, if really dark reads are not your thing, it may it may really not be the right book for you. Um, but it is a dark story because it's about a very dark topic. It's about um, the creation of the atomic bombs. Um, it's about our region's participation in that. Um, it's about Hanford in general and uh, the pollution and the contamination that has come out of Hanford since its inception in the 1940s. Um, it's about a lot of secrecy and duplicity that's occurred um, with Hanford for decades that really wasn't um, disclosed until the 1980s and um, about suffering that people have endured in the area because of that. Um, and it it is a story about our nation's uh, kind of dark history of um, harming people and militancy. So it's a very dark subject. Um, and I will say that some people have said that they think it's funny, that there are funny moments in it. Um, and there's also a certain fantasy element to it that you've probably seen in some of my other works that you've read. Um, so if if you enjoyed the mythological in those stories, you might enjoy that in this book, too. But it is a dark tale. I very intentionally wrote it um, to kind of grab a reader by the shoulders and shake them. Um, and that's very much what I intended all to right, do. All right. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that you necessarily convinced me. I still want to read it. It's just one of those things where I reach out and I'm just like, I don't know if I'm ready for this yet. Uh, so you mentioned the fantastic elements. And of course, that's a big part of everything that you've written. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I read some of the interviews before you came in and you said that you were inspired by mythology from the time you were a little girl. But mm -hmm. what's interesting is I was thinking about uh, like Circe, which is a big book that's coming out now. And, mm -hmm. and it, you don't use mythology the same way that a lot of other uh, authors use mythology. It's kind of, it's this juxtaposition of the of the fantastic and the kind of the quotidian and the mundane and stuff yes. like that. Is that a conscious decision or what, what led you to that idea? Uh, I think it's very much a conscious decision. Uh, it began with the first short story that was in my collection favorite monster that you mentioned um the one about the cyclops yes the yeah. one about the cyclops um there's a si i think the first line of the story is we were all surprised when brian hired the cyclops um, which is a great first yeah line. <laughs> and and i was really coupling um my love of mythology in that story with um kind of the depression that i experienced after leaving uh, a job not unlike the job the narrator has in that story. Um, she's working uh, in an office. It's kind of a high-stress job. Uh, there's a lot of money being exchanged in this job. Um, but she, you, you have the impression that it's a little bit soulless. Um, and she's having a lot of issues with herself in this job and, and her own dishonesty. Um, and I think when I went to write that story, um, I had just left... Uh, that job in particular, to kind of rededicate myself to my writing. I hadn't been writing for the entire three years that I had worked at that job. I'd hardly even been reading fiction, which mm. is unheard of for me throughout my whole life. I've always loved and read books, and this job just 
really stole that from me, um, or I allowed it to steal it from me, I guess. <laughs> um, so I, when I started writing fiction again, it was a really awkward process, and I wrote a lot of really bad work that I think I just needed, I needed to experience that kind of, um, uh, all of those mistakes again before I could really get into what I wanted to write. And then I decided um, I wanted to kind of toy around with what I loved. And the first thing I thought about, maybe because I'd returned to Spokane at the time, I was thinking a lot about my childhood. Um, I started thinking about those stories I loved from my childhood and the Cyclops popped up and I thought, well, it would be hilarious to have a Cyclops in this story. And he kind of becomes a touchstone for the character within the story. Um, and then so. you brought in non, you know, Greek mythological, you brought in the Sasquatch and the werewolf and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And mm -hmm. then what, how, was that just something where you said that works so well, I want to see what other creatures I can bring in? Yeah, I think so. I, mm -hmm. I think after the Cyclops story, I mean, I'd always loved um, marrying the weird and the fantastical with the mundane. I mean, I've probably loved that since... Um, well, since childhood reading fairy tales and mythology, but also since reading 100 Years of Solitude in, in college at UW, um, there was a certain sort of uh, heightened emotional truth there that I found kind of encased in uh, this very strange narration. And I think as a reader, that really astonished me. And I loved that sense of surprise. And as a writer, that's almost always what I'm looking for as a way to kind of surprise myself while I'm writing. And my hope is always that that will translate a little bit to the reader as sure, well. Sure. Well, and you mentioned too, you came back to Spokane mm -hmm. and I was, as I was reading a uh, favorite monster, well, just recently, uh, I, it feels like, correct me if I'm wrong, you sort of have this love-hate relationship with Spokane. That it, in some ways, I mean, because I'm thinking of like Jess Walter when he wrote uh, Financialize the Poets. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, he, you see the warts and all and yeah. the statistical <laughs> abstract and all that. Uh, to what extent do you feel like this region uh, coming back informed that as well? Yeah, you know, interestingly, I think a lot of the stories I wrote in Favorite Monster I'd written either as I was just returning to Spokane or a little bit um, a little bit after that. It was probably the first year I was back, and I think my relationship with Spokane was extremely tortured then. <laughs> um, you may or may not know, but I had this enormous public shaming I went through in high school. Um, and that story, the McGoogle account um, that we were talking about with the Cyclops, uh, very much discusses this narrator uh recognizing her own dishonesty and feeling such shame for that and wishing somehow that she could be this more honest person. Um, and because of lies I told in high school, um, the public shaming became worse and worse. And that's something I, I think I'll always think about and uh, that it was, it was kind of a great way to process it in the story to have that narrator um, kind of addressing herself and her dishonesty maybe um, more honestly than she ever had. Mm -hmm. And that starts happening in that story. And I'm sure that story started coming together like that because I was returning to this place where I had made this really big mistake, um, several big mistakes, and was having to think about them. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of that tortured relationship with Spokane was coming up <laughs> in all of those stories. Well, and I'm curious, too, so... Uh I mean, you said you were working through that idea. You were working through the shame of, of the public humiliation mm -hmm. or whatever. So you wrote the story and you you worked through it. I'm oh, I don't know. I don't well, think I'll that work. was that yeah. was kind of my question. <laughs> my question is because I think some writers, it's like some sometimes those things are like a toothache that they keep coming back oh, yeah. to. They they keep mm -hmm. hitting that. Yeah. So do you feel that that's kind of still the case that you're still working on that oh, idea? Oh, my whole and, life I'll be working on it. Okay. I mean, it's it's funny. I, I just uh, opened up this essay that I wrote last year um, about the entire debacle, um, and I even had um, Sean Vestal open up some. Uh, archives from the Spokesman Review because I had this memory of waking up on my 18th birthday with the entire editorial section of the Spokesman Review dedicated to whether or not I was a bad kid. <laughs> and I, I have thought for years that can't be right. That's too mythological in itself that mm -hmm, I would wake up mm -hmm. on that day, April 20th, you know, and mm -hmm. that, that it would just 
happened to coincide with my birthday by chance that this entire editorial section and it's true he went back and found it and it oh, and wow. it is it's the entire editorial section um letters to the editor all about me not about a single other subject um and that was just such a trippy thing to experience why do you think you were such um, a big story well i i talk about it a little bit in the essay um and you know the thing i I'm not entirely sure, but I think, I mean, we were talking a lot at the time um, about uh, how there had been football players who had gotten DUIs and who had not told the truth about it. But the story hadn't blown up in the same way. But there was something about a a girl doing this, I think, Mm. that became um, very uh, interesting to everyone and... I, you know, I'm not sure why it blew up the way it did. It was really um, bizarre. But I do think there was a little bit of misogyny involved Mm -hmm. in it. Um, Or almost like, uh, you know, everybody loves to see the Ophelia and the pretty dress drown, you know, (laughs) in the river. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Which um, was, uh, you know, it was was such a trippy place to be in. Um, And I, in the article I I write about, or the essay that I wrote that I've never published, uh, and I I don't know if I will publish it or not, um, because I, I still don't know if my perspective on it is the right one yet, or if it's possible to even have a, correct perspective on such a thing um so what is your current perspective well people have said to me um why don't you forgive yourself like why can't you just let it go um and i always can smile and nod at that sort of comment but i never quite know what people mean when they say that and i think i'm more interested in continually learning from it because there is so much to unpack um in the whole thing, things that I did wrong, things that maybe the community had done wrong. Um, But I think what it really comes down to is um, some of the lies that I told about how much I drank and, um, you know, uh, exactly how I got pulled over and all of that at the time by the officer that arrested me. Um, I... I'm realizing I'm really talking about this instead of my writing. (laughs) I apologize to everybody. Clearly, I'm going to be unpacking this my whole life. But, um, you know, I'm fascinated by the whole thing. I mean, intellectually, I am. uh, Emotionally, I am. And as a writer, I really am. And it's hard to say that I'm grateful that it happened. But I think I have learned a lot about myself and some of the worst aspects of myself. And I can't help but feel a little bit like that's a gift. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's funny because a lot of my career as an educator was the vice principal at a school. And, it, you know, a lot. what you're saying is really not that unusual. Almost to the point where people I would have to, you know, so-and-so is drinking at a party or so-and-so is, you know, smoking weed or or doing something that was breaking some sort of school policy where they'd be suspended or whatever. I would find that um, more often than not, people would lie and they would go down this road as far down as they could go, even though they knew, and they even knew that I knew, but they would continue to go down. And I always was fascinated by by that because it, it yeah. happened all the time and I think the more pressure that was on the kid to uh, admit to probably their parents or s- their family that they actually weren't somebody that their their parents or family elevated that I'm up to be right. there was such a psychological disconnect with that yeah. that it was far less painful just to go down the lying route even yeah. though they knew yeah. that that lying was also painful. But, I, you know, it felt you would, pain. You would it felt see that painful. a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it'd I be mean, amazing. Yeah, and I, and I think I was aware of it at the time. And I remember even being asked by uh, the very first port- reporter that approached me at the school <coughs> and being asked by them um, to uh, recount what happened and that it didn't even occur to me to tell the truth that hmm. it that it would be an impossibility to tell the truth because if i did 
everyone would think I was a bad kid. There was such a strange, like, black and white thinking I was doing with it, rather than saying, I'm imperfect, and I can talk about that imperfection, and I can, you know, it was, it was a very, yeah, it's a very strange thing. And, you know, at the time, my boss at the paper was Jess Walter's wife, Ann Windischar, mm. um, who was an amazing role model to me and mentor to me then. And I remember her calling me and asking me to uh, just talk to her. Sorry. <coughs> I have something stuck in my throat. Um, Wish you had that water now, huh? I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she asked me to just talk to her honestly and tell her the truth. And I knew this is a person that trusts me. This is a person I trust. And I could not tell her the truth on that phone call. And I've always remembered that. And she is now a school counselor. Mm -hmm. And I talked to her about it uh, not long after I moved back to Spokane and told her how sorry I was for lying to her in such a bald-faced manner. And she told me, um, that is what kids your age do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like uh -huh. you're chemically set up <laughs> to do that. At that age. In fact, you know? the more they're <laughs> conscious of right and wrong, the more they're apt to do that, which is the weirdest thing. Oh, that is strange. A lot, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, yeah I've seen it once. I've you know, seen it a hundred times. And I've seen adults do it. You know, well, look, I mean, look where... at what's going on right now. What? <laughs> Holy cow! Stepped in. I saw that like a million of them. It's, like it's very, on TV. it's very fear-based. Yeah. It's yeah. very fear-based. Very much so. I think. And I, and that that's all so fascinating to me. And I. So when people are like, oh, please forgive yourself, let it go, I'm like, oh, no, this is mine to worry over my whole life, and I'm going to very jealously guard the right to do that. I really am. Yeah, do you think um, it's a little bit of the fear of being exited from the tribe, so to speak? I think we're all hardwired to be mm -hmm. connected to the tribe. And if you do something, I mean, I think the worst thing that could happen to anybody is to be ostracized, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big part of the fear. Yeah. Well, I'm, you said it was kind of a blessing in a way. Yeah. Um, and my first thought is it's a blessing because you finally just said, well, the worst thing has happened to me. I had to come clean. And you could be honest not only in your life but in your writing. Is I mean, am I, am I reading this right or do you think there's more to it than that? Oh, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like there are always new ways to be dishonest. Like I can't, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 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 and I will say I am more aware of those urges now mm. when that rises um and you know i don't know if i mean there are always new ways to f things up i feel like in <laughs> life you know um and i i just um i think the thing i want to talk to my kids about is i want to be honest with them about what happened to me um and i want to be honest in a page too but i also write fiction which you know, <clears throat> I'm kind of making things up um, as I go. But I do want to get to um, some of the things that trouble us most as human beings and some of the ways in which we harm ourselves and harm one another the most. Um, and that's really, you know, what the Cassandra is about in a lot of ways. And I think um, when I when I think as a novelist, I am looking for those things that make us feel uncomfortable with ourselves. I'm looking um, at those to write about because um, I really feel like close examination is the only way that we can become better people. And that's not to say we're not going to mess up again and again. Like I can't say, oh, this happened in the past. I learned valuable lessons from it and I'll, I'll never be a bad human again. Like I'm I'm just always astounded at the great ways you know, <laughs> in which we can. How creative we are in that way. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. How we yeah. can mess it up or how we can hurt someone even when we didn't intend to. And how, uh, you know, it's just, it's really uh, endlessly interesting to me and, um, and worth, worth looking into in ourselves oh. and worth. I was going to say, I, I think, um, not that. <laughs> You'd, I think there's a real need for writers uh, to begin writing on just what you just talked about there um, because the when you're looking at schools now and what kids are saying and what they're or afraid to say because of the stigma attached to it. Right. But, I mean, the mental health issues around anxiety and depression, which tend to, you know, one tends to evolve or into the other at some point in time, is is kind of around that same thing. And I think social media, you know, is like, 
okay, I'm comparing myself now to a, a, perf- a, a false world that seems to be far better than what I can live up to. Um, not knowing having the tools or the language to process that. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the education through story or testimony or whatever that would be. But I think story is a better way to do it in, in fiction. Uh, I just see a real need for that. Yeah, yeah. As an I, educator. I agree. I mean, I think, I think there's a big difference between the writing that occurs in a social media post, which can be uh, uh, instantly cruel and uh, very... Um, you know, um, polarizing uh, versus the complex emotional complexity you might be able to find in a novel mm-hmm. um, and a longer story. And I, I think there, uh, people need access to to those those bigger, more elusive, um, more nebulous truths that occur in a novel um, because it allows us, I think, to give ourselves leeway in the ways that we can mess up as humans and also do great things as humans, uh, and that we're um, you know, we're very complex beings and we need to allow one another our complexity. And I see, um, I, I think people get really hurt when we don't allow that. Oh, yeah. You're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane, uh, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Also, Art Hour we relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month keeps KYRS going strong and you can help by texting Give KYRS to four four three two one. Mike, you're getting good at that. In the in that um, right. announcement, there there's parenthetical things where it says insert show name here, and Mike at first would read insert show name here. I almost <laughs> seriously, as you say that, read they have a phonetic spelling of affogato, and I was going to go cafe affogato affogato. <laughs> this is community radio. We are definitely not yes. on clear channel. Uh, so as you were talking about, you know, working through that. Stuff. Do you deliberately think you work through that stuff in your fiction, or do you think it just kind of comes out um, and you don't even see it until it's on the page? Um, I probably a little of both. I would say uh, I feel like in that McGoogle account story we were talking about, I, it was very intentional when I put that in there, mm-hmm. and I think because I was back in Spokane, I was thinking about all of these things again, and. I always want there to be some sort of tension within a character, some sort of issue they're trying to work through. And so, um, you know, that was really what was coming up to me at the time, that this is a character who is trying to be more honest, more honest with herself, more honest with other people. um, And she's fighting to do that. Um, But, you know, I still wanted her to be likable, human. Um, But there are also times when I write, say, a chapter of the Sasquatch Hunter's Almanac, and uh, I really like the tension in it. It fits in the novel, and then I realize, looking back at it, when I start to edit, that oh my gosh, this was about when I had postpartum <laughs> yeah, depression, yeah. Yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. um, and it's funny when I have that revelation when I go back to rework something and and see how much of uh, almost this subconscious pain I was pulling from and putting into the yeah. work. Um, well, I want, so. to, I want to ask a weird question as a preliminary to my next question. When do you write? What time of day? I, I have to write in the morning now. I okay. used to be an evening writer, and that doesn't work for me anymore. I don't have the energy at night. so. Do you find it difficult? Because you're creating a world. You have this. I mean, even as you get further into a novel, you have this whole story. You're, you're living with these characters. They're living in your mind. Uh, they're interacting. Do, is it hard for you to ju- – I mean, are you able to just say – I'm I'm leaving that world behind and I'm going to live my life? Or do you find that the novel or the short story begins kind of infiltrating your life? Now, I mean, because we just talked about your life infiltrating your work. Does your work, I mean, is, is that kind of uh, just overlapping a lot? I think there are certain days that are very emotionally draining as a novelist um, where I, I probably, because I'm pulling from those places and I'm really reaching deep into this uh, creative psyche or whatever you would want to call it um when i i feel like i've come out of a trance and i'm really out of it for the rest of the day Mm -hmm. like i i don't respond to questions that are asked of me by my children running around the house like i just i kind of zombie about the world um and my husband my husband's a novelist too and we we have seen this in one another that after like a particularly um i would say powerful writing day it's hard to reemerge into the the real landscape of our lives and um 
and that were still somewhat uh, like under the drug of that story we were in. Um, and that's a very strange thing. Uh, lately, I will say I've I've been just dipping in and out of the novel I'm writing. I've been writing an hour here, an hour there. Um, and maybe because I've been a little bit busy with other things and the paperback release of the book coming out, um, I haven't had that trance-like state. But I'm, I'm actually looking forward maybe to having <laughs> yeah. one of those because that yeah. usually means like when I'm really starting in the to flow. progress yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. in the story. And, um, and, and that's always kind of exciting. But, but I do feel for my family when I'm <laughs> like that because it's just like – Mom, mom, right. hello, mom. Right. Yeah. I'm here in body. <laughs> That's about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, I know. And then I slowly roll my head over to them. Like, yeah. Yes, son. But I don't and know. I, it's funny. I know a lot of writers are reluctant to discuss this, but you just mentioned you're working on a novel. Are you willing yes. to talk about what you're working on? I am. Yeah, I don't. Uh, my, my husband is, is very careful about talking about his work. Um, and a lot of writers are. But I am not one of them. I tend to overshare everything in my life, <laughs> including writing. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yes, I am working, I've been working on two novels, but really have narrowed it down to just the one right now, but I'm writing a, a novel tentatively called The Tower, um, and it's, uh, about a woman who is, uh, sentenced to death, uh, and she's not quite sure why, uh, it's very absurdist, it's really based on, um, Nabokov's invitation to a beheading, mm. um, and Sounds a little Kafka-esque too. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I think uh, I think Invitation to a Beheading gets compared quite a lot to Kafka's The Castle, mm-hmm. um, which I have not read. But Invitation is one of my favorite novels. So, um, yeah. So it's uh, you know it's a very uh, wacky book to write, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. And um, so that's kind of what I'm working on right now. In the last one, you had a lot of historical research that yes. went into it. This yeah. one, not so much? There is some historical research. Um, I've actually been researching uh, some of the worst atrocities that have ever occurred um, <laughs> to, so in mankind. Like man-made atrocities. So uh, like the Holodomar in um, Russia, where they, there was the intentional starving of the peasantry. Um, I've just, yeah. So I've been researching some very... Uh, dark things. Um, there's some references to Torquemada during the Spanish Inquisition and different things Jeez. like that. So, um, so uh, doing some research, but it is not nearly as research heavy as uh, that Cassandra was. That was um, almost every page, every line has something researched in it, I would say. Have you always been attracted to the dark stuff? or do Because it just sounds like you're trying to one-up yourself on the darkness meter here. Mm, I'm not, though. <laughs> this, this book will not be as dark. Oh, okay. And I think the absurdism will save it okay. from that quite a bit. It's going to be, I hope, pretty funny. But, mm. uh, but it, uh, yeah, all of my work has that sort of darkness in it. Um, you know, the Sasquatch Hunters Almanac has, you know, a giant pit that opens up in a forest. And, I mean, it's a reservoir of grief and um i think it kills a dog you know like <laughs> it's uh there's there's dark things in all of my work and yes i've always been attracted to that i i felt as a child reading greek mythology um that the endings always felt very true to me in a way that some of the more disneyfied endings of things did not feel um for example um with jason and the argonauts you have uh this hero that goes on this quest and and he achieves the golden fleece and he comes back and he becomes the king. Um, and of course he ends up um, really uh, harming Medea in the process. And to get him back, Medea kills their children. Um, and then he ends up at the end of his life walking down, uh, just happens to sit underneath the prow of the Argo, this ship of glory that has now, it's now all run down. Um, and the prow happens to break off and fall on his head and kill him. <laughs> and, and as a kid, I was like, boy, this story seems That's kind of like it's got, Python all, yeah, it's got all the parts in it. It has all the parts. And, and there was something very real to me about, yes, this, this man had all of this glory at one time and he had all of this pride and, and he achieved these goals. And, and, but then what, then what happens, you know? And, yeah. and it kind of saw it through to this ending that wasn't necessarily, um, glorious at all and and so that that always uh kind of interested me i think you also um it seems like a big theme in everything that you write or what we've just talked about is the a little bit of the female the condition of the female yes and its role Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I thought I read somewhere where there's a lot of regret and remorse kind of is a, one of the threads that weave through that condition. Um, mm. May, I mean, I think the human condition, for people that really examine their lives, I think regret and remorse are major entities there. I, I don't think everybody does that. I don't see Donald Trump experiencing <laughs> a lot of regret and remorse in his life. Um, and some people love him for that. Uh, I find that disturbing. Um, I, but I do think any life, uh, male, female, other gender, you know, that is well examined will have those things in them. I'm really fascinated by, um, this George Saunders quote, and I love George Saunders, Lincoln and the Bardo. And, uh, I were, I got to work with him at the university of Montana, which was, um, kind of a life changing moment for me. And, and I've heard he's um, just the nicest guy in the he's, world. He's amazing. Yeah. He's, a, he's a moralist, really. I mean, he's, he, um, he's very compassionate, and he exudes it when you're with him. He, you know, he's really incredible. Uh, and you, hear, you sense that in his writing when you're reading it, too. There's a very awesome moral center to his work. Um, but he had this uh, quote uh, where he said, our... Uh, our greatest regrets are our lapses in kindness. Mm -hmm. And that's frequently, you know, and that's connected to what we were talking about earlier, because I think sometimes people assume maybe my greatest regret is this thing that happened in high school. And it's not, it's actually the time, uh, you know, sometimes when I was intentionally mean to someone or when I was a jerk to a friend in seventh grade for or three months. Or when you months. lied to Anne. <laughs> <laughs> or when I right. lied to Anne. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I mean, just any time when there was a hurting of another person like that's those things really tug at me deeply. And I think about that a lot. Um, uh, but I do think, you know, I didn't necessarily set out to become um, this uh, big feminist writer, but I have always wanted to write from um a woman's perspective because I am a woman. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things when I won an award for favorite monster, um, an artist trust grant before the book was even published, um, they had said that one thing they really liked about it is, is that it centered women characters, um, that it was t these women, uh, the stories were told from their perspectives. Um, and I hadn't even really set out to do that. It's just, mm. that's who I am. And so those stories were being narrated by by women because that's my narration going on in my head constantly. Um, and, uh, but I like that about myself. I like that about my writing. And I, um, uh, I think there's a natural feminism that occurs in my work um, because uh, I do think there are a lot of ways uh, in which women are harmed daily. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are harmed, men too, by toxic masculinity. Um, and the Cassandra talks about that as well. Mm. Well, and there's some threads of that in some of your kind of non-monster stories in Favorite Monster. Well, I, I, that's actually kind of an, uh, an odd question. Would you consider that any of your stories in Favorite Monster are non-monster stories? Or do you really consider that there's a monster in each one of them? I, I think that uh, in all of the stories, it tends to be the humans that behave most <laughs> monstrously. No. Um, <laughs> and there are some non-monster stories that are very rooted um, in horrible things that people do to one another. Um, even kids that seem like good kids or adults that seem like good people um, hurt somebody else in a moment that is unforgivable. I mean, uh, the one I'm thinking about right now is Pulchritudinous. Is that the amusement um, park one? Uh, no, that one's pretty bad, too. <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody dies in that one. Uh, no, but there's a scene uh, in Pulchritudinous where um, a girl pees on a woman oh, who is right. passed out drunk. On her um, co-worker. She's, yeah. she's goaded into it by some boys there. And she suddenly feels this sort of rush, like she's fitting in. And then she's like, well, what, what can be the harm? This woman's passed out. She's not going to know. Um, and, and then she opens one of her eyes. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> and it's also, whether or not she imagines the eye opening, it's just a horrific thing that she does. Mm -hmm. And that, that, those two stories, I, I think, are the only two that I, I had written in graduate school. Oh. And that story with the peeing really upset some people in my workshop. They just thought it was so um More so than the horrific. murder one. More so than the murder one. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um 
And uh, I, I remember I had set out intentionally. Um, I had written the story up to the point of the peeing scene, as we called it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went out on a run uh, around Missoula to kind of clear my mind. I do that a lot while I'm writing. I need to kind of gather some space and take a walk or, you know, do something physical to try to work my way through a problem. Um, and I set out on that run trying to think of something very disturbing that this person could do to someone else um, that would be a lifelong regret that she would have. And, and that was what I landed on and what ends up happening in the story. Um, and, yeah, and it was, uh, I think, rightly troublesome for some people reading that. Um, but, of course, was intentional because I, I think there are these moments from my life uh, where I have not peed on someone um, like that. But, <laughs> Literally. But, yeah, but where I, I hurt somebody mm-hmm. and, and that I, I would give anything to take that back and wonder at how that happened and why I let that happen, you know. Mm-hmm. It's those lapses um, of kindness you talked about. Lapses of kindness. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Yep. Yeah. But what's interesting in that mm-hmm. story, too, is she ends up at the end of the story saying the same things that her father, who had abandoned her, had said to her, hoping yes. to gain forgiveness right. that she had not given to her father. Exactly. So yeah. it was interesting yeah. seeing that that, that yeah. carried on to the next generation yeah. in a way. But I do, I did intend for the last lines in that story to suggest she was going to try again, maybe in her own words, maybe, you know. Um, I mean, I wanted to leave it open, but I, I did want that to open up into a little bit of hope. Maybe she recognizes she can't do what her father did, and maybe she can. She was setting out to yeah. atone. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, yeah that, I th- and that she may clear. not be forgiven, but um, but she's going to try, I yeah. think. So, mm. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just thinking maybe this is probably might steer this in a, in a different way. I'm not sure, but I was looking uh, on your site just trying to do a little bit of research and i believe it was a kate vita painted your picture yes, for a show yeah. mm-hmm. and i and i thought and eric and i have talked about this uh i thought that was one of the best art shows i'd gone to uh last year it was mm-hmm. one of the really good uh, shows that was up there but the, the interesting th- thing about that portrait and i'm just curious to see what your thoughts were about that is that one of the comments made as people were writing about their own portrait that Kate painted was that they saw something in the portrait about themselves that they never, it caused them to think about something that they never thought about before, Mm. or they saw something there that that is me, but nobody else knows that about me. Did what, what was your thoughts about that Mm. experience? Um, You know, I think the thing that I, noticed that I appreciated right away is that my scar was front and center. Um, I have a large scar on my face from a skiing accident when I was in seventh grade. And um, I, uh, I really like my scar and I always forget about it. I forget that I have it. Like I look in a mirror and I don't see it at all. And so it was strange to see it captured in that way in a photo in, in the, in the, um, cause I didn't notice it in the photograph I sent her either. I, it was really in the painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved that. And I also have noticed that it almost looks, um, to me and I didn't feel this way in the digital one I saw, but when I went to see it in the studio and now I have it in my house, um, and I love it, but I, there is this, um, sense that I, I'm chewing glass. Like it looks like I'm chewing on glass in the picture. Like I'm, um, like almost like I'm tense with thought in it. And, uh, that really is how I am. I mean, not that I chew glass, but yeah. I'm constantly grit, like gritting my, um, jaw muscles and I get a lot of jaw pain from that and stuff. And so it was just, I don't know, pretty powerful to see that represented in the picture itself. Like I, I don't know. I just sort of loved it, but yeah, um, I was just thinking, you don't see that in a, yeah. a photograph yeah. necessarily, but a yeah. painting of a photograph when whatever she brought out. I thought yeah. it was interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had friends tell me that they they were really struck by how, like, the kind of pain and sadness they saw in my eyes. But I but I was just like, well, yeah, pain and sadness. That's what I'm all about. <laughs> Why would you be, you know, surprised uh, by that? Like, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it was, in- it was interesting when I saw it up close, um, the actual painting, and I saw this, you know, Kind of the tense jaw that I have, the you know, um, always worrying, always a worrying thought or something. 
So yeah. is that have you always been that way uh, as I a think kid? So. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I was, I was an curious kid. to know as you're growing up mm-hmm. on the South Hill, mm-hmm. um, that as you're growing up, have you always been attuned to? maybe the absurdity of real life in your you kind of get to view that a little bit at the south hill and yet you're overlooking probably in less than five minutes away a completely different socioeconomic world yeah and trying to juxtapose all of that stuff while while growing up i mean is that just in your nature to observe and then try to process yep i think so um i really noticed it when i went to middle school at libby um that there was uh a big socioeconomic divide from where I had grown up and and where a lot of people that lived right next to the school were growing up. Um, And I think I, I, from a very young age, was skeptical with the sort of, um, like, kind of easy privilege that my family had. Um, This, you know, kind of country club membership uh, thing happening that, I never really liked. I mean, maybe it's just because I hate golf. I <laughs> <laughs> really hated it as a kid. Um, and uh, just kind of, um, I don't know. I, I saw a lot of differences between, um, you know, one side of the family and then my, my mom's side of the family in Okanagan, um, Washington, which was um, a much smaller town, um, much more humble people, um, but also people that I was closer to. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I always had kind of a hyper uh, curiosity about everything. And um, I don't know that I ever really understood anything properly. And probably I'm still learning things now um, about the way the world works. I don't know. <laughs> you know. And I think um, that's why a lot of people write. They're trying to figure out the way the world works. Yeah. What was the first story you remember writing? I mean, like a complete story. Uh, well, I I was creating books as a girl before I even knew how to read or write. My mom said, you know, I would staple these books together okay. with stick figures in them. Um, hmm. My very first story I ever had um, uh, kind of talked about in a in a classroom setting was in fifth grade because that, that was the first year I had a teacher who really saw my love of writing, Mrs. Voschel at Adams Elementary, um, and wanted uh, wanted me to continue with it uh, no matter what. She told my mom, um, this is something she loves. She's really great at it. Um, she was like, I had one other student who was like this, and she didn't continue with it, and I really want Sharma, you know, to go for it, um, which I think is – like it it was such a sort of life affirming year for me having that teacher made a huge difference for me and and she since passed away and I did get I did run into her at the Hastings parking lot the old Hastings on the South Hill mm-hmm. years ago and I got to tell her that mm. oh that's um, awesome yeah. in fact it was when all the lilac things were happening lilac debacle things and she ran up to me in the parking lot and said I love you no matter what. Oh my gosh. You know, ah, forget geez. all this stuff happening. Um, what a gift. And, you know, and I got to tell her that there. And so, um, so that was pretty special. But, um, yeah, I, uh, but I was writing stories long before that. I, um, and were they dark yeah. even then? Um, I, you know, I think the story that she talked about was a very cheerful story in okay. that class. But there was, uh, there was some stuff. Like I, I, um, I'm trying to think. I I had some stories. Like I I had a, you know, story about someone getting stabbed and uh, you know, in like a, on Paul Revere's ride or something. Like whatever we were learning about in school. But it ended with a stabbing. Um, and probably because I was reading, you know, even even at that age, which I shouldn't have been reading because it gave me such bad nightmares. But Stephen King mm. and um, you know, Christopher Pike books mm. and you know all that stuff uh, that kids would read uh voraciously <laughs> but um so i kind of liked the scary stuff a little bit too um even though at night i i really had trouble sleeping because of it but um i had a question so we talked about your first story now we're going to talk about kind of your last story cassandra uh when you went to hanford to tour it which inspired you to write the book is that was that your goal when you went there were you thinking i want to write a book about hanford so i want to go or uh was it something that just kind of happened and then once you got there what was it that made you say, this is the thing that I have to put in the book? 
Uh, let's see. So um, I was writing a book, a mad scientist novel that I wanted to have um, be sort of like a Northwest Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, and I had been trying to think of a location for that. But um, around that time, I was uh, diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And people would say to me, oh, well, we um, we have a high incidence of that in the Northwest because we're downwind of Hanford. Mm. And I didn't really know what to think of that at the time. But I, um, I booked a tour of the Hanford site thinking, wow, this could be a great setting for a mad scientist novel. I'll just plunk a physicist down at Hanford. It'll be great. Um, and I, I was thinking it was going to be a contemporary story and that Hanford would be kind of run down now um, and that I was and I was going to kind of just have it be this more absurd story about um, a brain. Like It was going to be narrated by a brain in a jar. Like it was, you know. Um, but anyway, I went and did the tour. Um, and I think what really fascinated me is that people in – 1944 and 1945 who were working there the vast majority had no idea what it was they were manufacturing and didn't find out until a couple of days after the bombs were dropped um on uh hiroshima and then and then nagasaki and and they specifically made the plutonium for nagasaki um so i think that idea of uh the patriotism it took to all come together into the desert um, build this entire community of, you know, 40,000, 60,000 workers overnight, um, uh, create this, this village that, uh, you know, was filled with workers, um, mostly men, uh, some women entering the workforce for the very first time ever. Um, I, and then some of the signage that I saw, the vintage signage they had up, made me really start thinking of what it was like being a woman working there at that time. Um, because the signs would say things like, um, tell no one, not even her, um, you know, or, uh, or they would, you know, have a, you know, a man standing outside smiling, doing his service while his, uh, his wife and son and daughter stand in the window looking out at them wistfully, you know, curious, but they're not going to learn the answers, you know? So I, I just, uh, yeah, I, I was really drawn to that time frame and it really attracted me to write something very different from the Sasquatch Hunters Almanac which spans 70 years um, multiple characters um, and to really hone in on one woman um, during one year essentially um, and one location and so uh, I got to write kind of an entirely different book and that's that's always really exciting for me um, to kind of surprise myself in that way so I think those were the major factors. Um, and I suddenly started doing all this research and became this historical writer that I never thought I would be. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and now you've got these two novels that are going. You've gone to the one that it might be called The Tower. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned you had an essay that you may or may not publish. Mm -hmm. uh, is there something coming out soon from you anywhere, uh, oh. like a short story published somewhere? And I've seen you've been in The New York Times in different places. Is yeah. there something in the hopper? Um, I think I have an essay coming out in Large Hearted Boy um, in a few days here, which is basically – uh, Large Hearted Boy is a website that has writers who have published books um, give a playlist of songs that match, you know, the, the different themes in their books. And so that's coming out in a couple days here. Um, I have a short story collection that I've given to my agent, but uh, we're holding on to it probably until I finish my next novel. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to think if I have anything else coming out. I don't think I do right now. It's, okay. Yeah, it's pretty quiet. And Mike asked a question of me earlier, and I want to ask it of you. Uh, it seems like for a city our size, for a city as isolated as it is, we seem to have a pretty vibrant writing community, and we are trying to figure out why that was. Do you have any theories about why it seems like with our, with our poets and with our novelists and essayists and all that, I mean, am I wrong in thinking that? And if I'm not, what do you think? What do you think's the magic sauce? Well, i I think um, I, I think for a city our size, um, we probably have uh, I would imagine about as many writers as you would have anywhere in a city of our size, maybe. But I will say, I think the amazing thing about Spokane has been uh, the networking that the writers here have done and the ways that they've helped support one another and the ways that that's helped us, a lot of us, get on a national stage. 
uh, in this very cool way. Like, I really don't think my career uh, would be where it is now if it were not for the support of Jess, um, who has blurbed my books from the very beginning, who has talked to people about them. Um, and as his career has gotten bigger, more people are paying attention to what he says. Um, and I, I think he helped set a tone where a lot of us are doing that for one another. Um, and that uh, really helps us get on this bigger map than just the regional, um, but that more people are looking at our work. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm still uh, very much a regional writer. I think most most of my books are sold in the Northwest. Um, I, I do not have like a beautiful ruins type book mm-hmm. that is a national bestseller. I don't, I don't have that. Um, but I think whatever um, notice I have had, I'm just really grateful to the writers who have stepped up and talked about it and talked about my work and helped get it out there. So, so I have a real quick question. You talked about this site where you are a project where you had to match a song with, with a writing. Mm-hmm. So if there, is there a song that maybe best describes Sharma Shields? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say right now, um, my favorite band is, um, Big Thief, uh, which is a group I really like. Um, and they, had two albums out this year and both of them were on the top 10 on an NPR list uh, apparently but um, I really love their work and I start off the playlist with the um, song The Toy which uh, I think talks a little bit about um, some of the wrongs um, we've done to one another as as people and mentions um something that sounds like nuclear warfare in it um so it felt like the right fit for this last book um but lately i've been working at the local bookstore wishing tree and i've been playing a lot of neil young oh, <laughs> nothing wrong with that no yeah. i know yeah. and that's well, been that's been really fun sharma thanks for coming in yeah, our time is done i yeah, had you. a great time talking to you yeah, and good so luck much. to you and maybe we'll have you here some other time hopefully good. thank you both 